0: And stitched it up with, I forgot how many stitches, it was a lot, uh, stitched it up and told me, you'll never be able to use this hand again, it'll be just a glorified club on the end of your wrist, and so you'll never be able to use it again, so I was thinking, man, I'm working on painting at home, and I'll never be able to paint again, it's my right hand.
1: Welcome to This Alabama Life, a new podcast that highlights some of the wonderful, uplifting stories from people from Alabama or people who have some sort of association with Alabama. My name is Don Keith. I know two first names, but that's all there are. Here in the South, when I say Don Keith, they always say Don Keith what? That's it. That's all there. Well, there's a middle name that we don't use. I'd like to say hi to my partner in crime, Andrea Tice. Good to see you again.
2: It's good to be back second time around.
1: Yep. And I think we have an absolutely fantastic story to tell today. And that's the object of This Alabama Life, is to tell uplifting stories about people from Alabama. And we hope you will uh, help us spread the word. You can go to iTunes or Spotify, practically any place where you get podcasts, and download this particular podcast. And you can watch the video version on YouTube on the channel for 1819 News, who are the kind folks that put this thing together. 1819news.com is the place to go. Now, in the, the spirit of complete disclosure, <laughs> I know our guest today because he and I have worked on several projects together. I'd like to introduce Steve Skipper. How are you doing, sir? Nice. Nice. Uh, nice to be here. <laughs> I'm doing fine. And Steve and I, have, well, first we wrote a book together. Oh, yeah. And then we did a movie together, Colors yeah. of Character, which uh, is a documentary about Steve's story that is available wherever. Uh, Uh, DVDs are sold. It's also available for streaming on several places. You can go to ColorsOfCharacterMovie.com and see the trailer and see all that sort of thing. But first, also in the full disclosure mode here, I met Steve through a mutual friend. Uh, When you become a published author, which I am, you start getting calls and visits from folks who say, hey, you want to tell this story. I'm an insurance adjuster and nobody's ever done the story of insurance adjusters or whatever.
2: It's riveting. Absolutely. (laughs) And I'm
1: always typically working on two or three books at the same time. Well, in this case, I got that that call from a mutual mutual friend that said, Don, I want you to meet this guy because you will want to do a book about him. And I said, no, Greg, I'm awfully busy. I'm going to have to turn you down. And he said, well, We're going to have barbecue and I'm buying. I said, okay, I'm free Thursday, Friday, Monday, or Tuesday, you name it. (laughs) I got to meet this fellow then. And once I had heard his story, I knew, okay, whatever else I'm doing, I have got to tell this story because it is going to be such an inspiration. It's going to be life changing to a lot of people. Speaking of life changing, Mm -hmm. your story certainly is. Tell us about growing up, Birmingham, Rosedale, this area. Well, uh, Rosedale, uh, you know, in the Homewood area. And,
0: Grew up um, uh, pretty, pretty tough, you know, upbringing. Uh, uh, Streets of Rosedale provided uh, an opportunity or an avenue for the enemy to use me in a gang called the Crips. And uh, I think around 13 years old, uh, experienced a lot of dysfunction in my home. And uh, the dysfunction caused um, a lot of... um, opening for the enemy to come in and uh, your self-esteem is actually attacked when it comes to dysfunction in your home. And so it opens you up for um, avenues that you're not, you know, meant to go down. And so on a Sunday afternoon, I was right after church, I was 13 years old and actually introduced to marijuana for the first time. And then uh, after that, I was told about uh, this group uh, called the Crips. And uh, never heard of it before. You know, there's a scripture in the Bible that said men love darkness rather than light because darkness covers up their evil deeds. So this situation was something that was actually more real than real, but at the same time it was done in a cloak of darkness. And I think that one night, probably around 14 years old, I was invited to come to a uh, meeting with these guys and and uh, not really knowing what was going on and. Actually shaped in my mind and my heart by the dysfunction that was going on in my in my in my home, and uh, had a lot of anger problems uh, inside of me even at that young age.
1: Did you yeah. say you were looking for family, brothers? Yeah,
0: because my family was broken, and that, that's that's where the 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 enemy really takes advantage of, of young kids because you're going through a whole lot of trauma that you don't know how to handle. And at the same time, instead of you handling it, it starts handling you. And so I was prime, you know, for something like this. And then when they presented themselves, they presented themselves as family. And so, uh, but I didn't know that the first t- thing you have to do to get into the the gang is not to, this is not the Boy Scouts. I mean, it's not, not anything like that. But at the same time, uh, the, what you have to do, you have to be called what they call jumped in. And, uh, at that time, you know, you have to fight about 10 guys, you know, 10 guys are fighting you and you have to fight them. Well, I had so much dysfunction on the inside of me, so much hate and so much anger on the inside of me, you know, and I was very, very angry at my mother. And every time I looked at either one of the guys, they looked like her. And so I started fighting and the next thing you know, blood was all over me and the guys were on the ground and I looked at the leader. I said, are you next? And he
1: said those infamous words. He said, you're in. Hmm. Congratulations, you're a Crip. Back it up just a little bit. You mentioned being angry with your mother. As a child, you had a dream, and that was part of the frustration that you were encountering that eventually led you to the Crips. What was that dream?
0: Well, I wanted to be an artist. I had an uncle that was an artist. And when I say he was an artist, I don't mean as a professional because in his day of growing up, uh, an African-American to say I wanted to be an artist in his day, that was out of the question. You know, the only opportunities that African americans had in that day was something labor or something like that, physical labor or something like that. But as far as some of the fine art, I mean, you were discouraged very harshly to, to not dream in that area. And so, but he was very good. He would come over to my mom's house and he could sit down and he could look at anybody and draw you. Uh, uh, detail for detail, realism for li- realism, and, and I always loved him. And But I always used to uh, notice that he was always depressed. Every time you would tell him how good the the artwork was, he would seem to get more and more depressed for some reason. Hmm. And my mom knew about that. She knew the reason why. And so when I said I wanted to be an artist, She knew everything that he had gone through and the the discouragement and everything, the harsh discouragement that he had gone through of not being able to realize that dream. And she didn't want that for me. But for years, you know, I didn't know that. I I thought that when I said I wanted to be an artist, I thought she was against it, you know. And so I used to always try to get her approval, you know, and and try harder and harder and harder to be an artist, you know. I didn't know the real story behind my uncle's situation until I got older. So uh, one day, uh, uh, one of my teachers, uh, Bernal Saunders from Rosedale Elementary, she came home and she told my mom I had a special talent. I was drawing on the back of my notebooks. I thought she was going to come to my house and get me in some trouble. <laughs> but um, she came to my mom my mama, and she told her, uh, he has a real special talent. I think he's going to be a great artist one day. And so my mom heard that and equated my uncle's situation with what she was saying. is said, no, nah, he's not going to be an artist. He's going to get a real job, and he's going to just do like everybody else. And so not being able to understand her reaction, because I'm excited when I heard artist and no trouble. <laughs> right. I'm really excited. I'm going to be an artist one day. And she's saying it, and the teacher is, you know. And so um, she's telling my mom if she went to the principal, she talked to the principal about it. Uh, see if there was any funds allocated for materials for me to, to work with and there were no funds. So she decided that she was going to uh, fund it my, herself. And so she did. She went and got me art supplies and everything and I would be in this room at the school never heard of old paints. The only thing I heard of was pencil and paper. Mm-hmm. Never heard of a paint, paintbrush or anything like that and sitting in the room and wondering what it was about and then at the same time opening um, one of the tubes of old paint and seeing how it flowed and everything, and uh, but I wasn't used to anything but pencil. But the smell of the paint—it seemed like it got in my spirit. And even now, in my studio, when I open some paint, I think about my songs. And uh, it was a special, special time. Only thing I regret was when we did the movie and we did everything. God start blessing my business. I wasn't able to pick up the phone and call her because she's passed. But at the same time, I take a whole lot of gratitude in the fact that she's looking. Right,
1: yeah. Well, like so many, you were looking for something. You found it, what you thought you were looking for with the Crips. And, you know, you're not old enough to get a driver's license. (laughs) No. But you were doing some pretty bad stuff.
0: Uh, I think that the normal person, their mindset when it comes to gangs is so messed up. I think that even when it comes to movies, movies are so off because when i say off it's a whole lot worse than you think it is i mean it it is it's terrible and it's happening all around us and it's done in the dark and there's a tremendous amount of evil that's going on all out there in the world that you never hear about you know you never the news media never says anything about it we never got caught doing anything I mean, there are so many crooked policemen out there that that would turn the other way for a certain amount of money. And that was going on at the same time when we were out there. And and, uh, uh, as bad as you could think, or as bad as your imagination can go, it's probably ten times worse.
2: Do you think that, um, you mentioned the movies and the way that they portray this inaccurately, do you think they go just far enough to add a little bit of mystique slash glorify some violence to to intrigue people without well, without showing the full measure of it all
0: well this is a, this is such an evil world i mean uh, when i say world i mean that part of the world mm. it's such an evil part of the world that entertainment is the last thing that you think about out there mm. so as far as anybody trying to make a movie or these are people the people that make movies are using imagination mm. and so imagination goes to a certain level I've seen probably two movies that were pretty close. You know, they were pretty close, but I've seen a lot of movies that you go, "Oh man, what is this?" And then the normal person thinks it's a great movie. They win Oscars and all this kind of stuff, but it's not that real world. So, um, and it's just like people at the same time how people imagine what it's like to be a Christian. I mean, you've heard about it, you know, you Heard about God, you heard about Christ and all that kind of stuff. But until you experience it for yourself, you know, you're really selling yourself up real real short. (laughs) And so, when it comes to that world, people can sit around talking about it all the time. And and you could, as good as God is, the devil is just that evil. Mm -hmm. And so, God is just infinitely good. Nobody can tell you how good. I mean, it's all. It always gets better and better and better. Well, Satan is the exact opposite. He gets worse and worse and worse. And so there's a level out there that is so bad that the normal person, I mean, it would blow your mind. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: I mean, you can't get much closer to satanic than uh, what you were doing. And uh, yet you still had somebody whispering in your ear and oh, you had boy. one person oh, that was trying to reach you. <laughs> oh, How did that work and what was the, oh, the outcome boy. of that?
0: Well, it <laughs> ended up my best friend, but started out uh, the biggest headache i ever had in my life. <laughs> um, I remember one day we were uh, celebrating, call ourselves celebrating in a park. And we had just got through robbing some people the night before. So we're celebrating how much we robbed and how much we got. And so we're in this park and we're getting ready to start taking drugs. And we're, we're it's about 12 of us. And, um, <laughs> remember this like y- yesterday, um, just about 12 of us sitting down on on this park bench in this park and had a little pavilion over the, over the bench. And everybody knew, uh, not to approach us. Everybody knew that. And so we knew everybody knew we had taught people. Well, don't, don't say anything. Don't go, you know, just don't even speak. Don't say good morning, please. And so there was a guy that was a lifeguard at the swimming pool in the park. And we used to call him Big Mike. Everybody called him Big Mike. He was a very, very big guy. And he had become uh, what they called at the time. that He had become a Christian. And he had become saved. And so he yells down. It's 12 of us down there now. And he yells down. Out of 12 people, he yells one name, Steve Skipper. You need to put that stuff down. And you need to see what God has for you. Wow. Wait, I mean, it's 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 actually taboo for you to even say hello to this group. <laughs> and you yell all of this down here, and you pointed at, you know, the worst in the group. And so I'm sitting there, and all the guys look up at him and, you know, like German shepherds, and they started reaching for the, you know, everybody has, has its own weapon. And so this was before... Uh, you were licensed to carry. <laughs> so uh, everybody's reaching for their weapons and stuff like that to defend me and stuff like that. And and I tell them, no, don't worry about it. I mean, it's no big deal. He's not going to do anything, anything. It's no big deal. Let's go ahead and w- what we're doing. But secretly on the inside, I had started to become tired of what we've been doing. And And there's a scripture in the Bible where Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your soul. I mean, you can be energetic in your body, but your soul can be tired of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And so I couldn't show them that I was tired. I had to show, I'm leading at that time, and and, and uh, I couldn't show them I was tired, and uh, I wanted out or anything like that. But everything Mike started to say about God was feeding my soul. Mm-hmm. And so you can't see the soul, which, is, which was great at the time, because if they knew how hungry I was, they would kill me. So um, Mike got very, very bold. He actually, there was a fence where the pool was. He came from out where the fence was and came down there where we were. So when he started walking towards us, I knew he was a dead man. And so uh, kept walking, kept coming closer. They started to reach for their, stuff, their guns. And um, I said, no, leave him alone, man. He's no big deal. He said, I, I said, let me go over and talk to him. And so he came over and he, I mean, he went, you know, Scripture, scripture, Bible, Bible, witness, witness, and he went off. And everything he was saying was really, really angering them to the point to where they wanted to kill him so bad. But it was feeding me. And so I walked up to Mike as if, you know, I walked up to people before, and I walked up to him had 45 in my waist. And I walked up to him, and I said, kind of low, I said, you don't really need to do this right now, you know these guys are really serious, they're really serious. And he looked at me and said, I'm real serious too. Oh, wow! I said, you don't understand. I said, these guys are possessed by a certain spirit, man, and it ain't holy. And at the same time, your life is in danger. Well, he said, I'm possessed by a spirit also, and it is holy. And your life is in danger if you don't listen to what I say. What a counter. And never heard that kind of counter before. Yeah. And so I told him, I said, Look, I'll make a deal with you. I said, I'll go to church with you on one condition. He said, What's that? He's I said, if you just stop talking to me about Jesus, I'll go to church with you one night. He said, Okay. He said it too quick. He said, Okay, I got a plan. He said, Okay, uh meet me at the church on Friday night. And I thought, Wait, wait, oh, whoa, whoa. <laughs> on Friday night, seven o'clock, meet me at the church. I said, Okay. I said, that church right there, they they have church on Sundays. What are you talking about Friday night? He said, I got a minister. He's going to come to the church. He's coming there just for you. He said, meet me there at 7 o'clock. I said, okay. So I'm thinking, I've been to church before. I know how it goes and all that kind of stuff. They get in there and they start singing and all that kind they of kind stuff. Of like there. the music. Yeah, they get excited over the music and everything. And then they start praising God and whatever that is. And once they get excited, I'm going to meet a guy outside, 7.15. I'm going to start taking speed i want that guy to meet me right outside the church at 715. I'm going to go in here and stay in here for 15 minutes, and I'll meet this guy out here, and I'll go ahead and graduate into uh, drugs and start taking the speed that I'm selling. That was my plan. Well, God had a plan. I would go in there, and instead of 15 minutes, I'd stay 46
2: years. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> and he remembers
0: the yeah.
1: date exactly. Uh, wow. December 23rd, 1976,
0: six, seven 746 p.m., 946 p.m., I got to say. Um, then I found out that the drugs that I was going to take would not cut right and it would have killed me. So I got soul saved, life saved, same night. Then realizing I had to go face the Crips because the message that I heard about Jesus Christ was so powerful. What I found out that night killed the dysfunction in my life because I found out that he loved me enough and he cared about every aspect of my life. When you in that kind of situation, you don't think anybody cares. So that's what you're fighting, the fact that nobody cares. I have nothing to lose. So I got this lifestyle that death is nothing, you know, it's it's not a threat to me. And so in the mindset of a gang member, for you to get shot, for you to get killed, or for you to go to jail for the rest of your life, these are badges of honor. Mm-hmm. Because your self esteem is so low. You have there's no future, there's no goals, there's no nothing. There's nothing in front of you. So when I found I heard the gospel and I found out how much God didn't just send his only begotten son, but he sent him with a plan and a purpose for my life. And the plan and the purpose of my life contradicted every, everything that was the foundation of my low self-esteem. So, man, this is it. So now I'm going to go to these guys and tell them I'm out. And I had experienced people sent saying, me, you know, they wanted to be out. And I knew what, you know, I knew what always happened. And you know, the creed was the only way you get out is to die out. So, I had heard that minister say, and it penetrated my heart, that if I died at any moment after I accepted Christ as my personal Savior, that I'd go and live with Christ in eternity, forever. This is cool. The coolest thing ever was. And so, I realized if I told them I was leaving and they'd kill me, you couldn't hurt me. You're going to send me to a better place. (laughs) Place called no more. No more pain. No more nothing no more no no nothing you know anything negative is gone so that's a whole lot better than where I am right now and so when I told him I was uh not not coming back and and that was a, a boldness on me um the bible talks about the anointing which is the presence of Jesus Christ on the life of an individual that believes in him that spirit came on me, and that anointing came on me the night I got saved. Well, see, when you don't know Christ and you're in something like this gang activity and stuff like that, you have a spirit on you mm-hmm. that leads and guides you and tells you everything to do it and all this evil stuff. But this spirit is no match for this one. I learned that. I didn't know it at the time. When I said I wasn't coming back, this spirit, the Holy Spirit, stood up on the inside of me and faced this other spirit that was in, on the inside of them. And these were some of the most evil cats you ever met in your life. And and I saw them back up. Never saw them back up for nothing. And I said, I'm not coming back. And that was a boldness came out of me. I wasn't, you know, just whispering nothing. And so when I said this, you know, uh, they didn't say anything. I'll never be back. I'm gonna serve the Lord the rest of my days. And I actually thought that the rest of my days was that day because I've seen people say you ain't coming back, and it never ended well. And so uh I turned my back and I started to walk out. First step, I'm looking for the shot. I'm 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 really, really. When I took took that first step. I'm looking for the shot, and I'm going to heaven, but I'm looking for her. second step. Third step, no shot. One million step, no, stop, no shot. So they never said a word, and I think it shocked them so much that the radical change that God had placed in my life, because they knew me personally, they knew me intimately, evil. But to see that change take place like that, it was it was totally shocking. And what it's been my forty-seven years, nothing.
2: Have you ever seen any of those gang members since then? And have you ever seen the pastor or the preacher? Oh,
0: God. The preacher, we talk all the time. Okay. Uh, And then Big Mike, he became my best friend. Uh, We were like twins. And uh, when his mother passed, uh, they had it in her obituary that I was her son. We were that close. Mm -hmm. And my mom did the same thing when she passed. Well, he passed away. Uh, probably about 10 years ago. And so he's watching all of this in heaven. And he became a movie star with, with us. <laughs> and so uh, he's watching all this stuff from heaven. And so the minister that led me to Christ, uh, Jesse L. Menci Jr., he's not only uh, very, very close to me. We talk almost every other day. Uh, he was in the movie also. Okay. And he recalled everything that happened, you know, that time. And so it's been a uh, serious ride.
1: Well, I'm sure you're saved. Everything turns around. You find success instantly as a painter, and everything's perfect, right? <laughs> no, brother. No, Movie I script. Yeah, right?
2: That's
0: one thing about God. I mean, He calls you when He when He calls you into something. It's so you know. It's so miraculous that He's talking to you. <laughs> that He never tells you about the stuff you're going to have to go through to get where He's trying to tell you to go to. And especially anybody knows that when you're a pioneer, uh, you're going to have to take all the flack up front. And the people that's coming behind you, probably 100 years behind you, they can tell your family you did a great job. But all the stuff that you have to go through up front, um, it's necessary. And um, in my situation, it was uh, pretty much the same when we wanted to do artwork. University of Alabama, uh, here you go. Uh, going to the university of alabama no college uh, uh education barely got out of high school and all of a sudden god gives you this gifts and his talent he tells you to go to the university of alabama talk to this person and then he just leaves you out there and so the very person he told me to talk to is one of the toughest guys in history which is uh, ray perkins who took over for, for bear Bryant, uh coach Bryant. you don't say bear uh oh. <laughs> but um uh, God sends me down here with no appointment to talk to Ray Perkins about doing artwork at the University of Alabama. African-American, no appointment to King Kong. <laughs> and, and go down here and and his secretary looks at me and she says, oh, I tell her, I want to see Coach Perkins. And she looks at me like, and and now that, you know, I've been affiliated with the university for all these years and stuff like that. And I look back on it, I was talking to my wife this morning. How crazy was I? I mean, but I just loved the Lord enough to just do whatever he told me. But to think about it, I mean, he picks you, and he knows you're not going to think about it, and you just obey it. But if I'd have thought about it, I would have never gone down there. But um, went down there. He told the secretary, she mentioned my name. He over there, a little loudspeaker and stuff. And he told her, I don't know any blank. they like, blank, Steve. Skipper, tell him to get out of here. And so <laughs> I went down there. This is the guy that took over from Coach Bryan, so he had to be super tough, and he was. And so <clears throat> I went downtown, and I sold a couple of prints of a drawing that I had done, Cornelius Bennett, Van Tiffen, and Mike Shula. And Mike Shula was the guy that sent me down there because I saw him at the Atlanta Falcons training camp where I was doing artwork with the Atlanta Falcons, and he told me why not try out Alabama. So I went down there and I said, okay. So... Uh, Perkins came back on the intercom and he told the uh, secretary before I left, tell him to come back in about two hours. That was his test. Uh. Nobody's never going to come back in two hours, you know? So in two hours I came back down there. She called him again and told him I was back. Said, tell him to come back in 30 minutes. Went downtown, sold some more prints. I made about $300. I didn't care whether or not he saw me at all. I made mean, $300 in one day. This was Crip money, <laughs> so <laughs> I said. Uh, went back there in thirty minutes. God told me to go back. So He said, "Sit him back here." Now back then, you had to walk from the receptionist desk all the way to this this hallway. Same hallway seemed like i sIxty five. It was so long, <laughs> and you are walking and you know it's just a narrow hallway, and you come to his office, and it's like. bigger than Brian Denny Stadium. And he's sitting behind this desk with these glasses over his eyes. And he looks up over the glasses and he said, what are you doing down here? Now you got to understand how it just got saved, but I used to be a crip longer than I was saved. And so his little temperament and my temperament kind of, you know, and, you know, we went at each other a little bit. I went toe for toe with him and, at that point, I thought he was going to say, "Get up, you know, let's get out of here. No, no, no. no, he liked that. He liked somebody to stand up to him. And so that's the thing about tough people, you know, they like somebody who will stand up to them. And if you cave in to them, they'll never respect you. So uh, he said, uh, how much do you want for the drawing you did of uh and tipper? And like a, like a dummy, I said, $250. And he said, that's all? I said, oh, my God. I could have said a thousand dollars. I mean, and he asked for the secretary to bring in the little petty cash thing, and he gave me two hundred and fifty dollars. And and uh, he said, "I tell you what," he said, "I got a guy that's down here that's doing portraits of the football players, senior football players." He said, "How would you like that job?" Number one, you got a guy that's doing it, and now you're asking me if I want the job. He's about as cutthroat as a crip. So I said, "Sure, I'd like to do that." He said, I'm going to fire that guy right now and I'm going to give you that job. He said, We got 22 singers this year. I need portraits of each one of them. You got two weeks. I was so happy. <laughs> I didn't think about two weeks. <laughs> and so I started going back up the freeway and I was real happy on my way back home. And I stopped on the side of the road. I said, Two weeks? 22, 20, 22 and
2: two 20, weeks? 14 days.
0: I said, what have you done? And so I started (laughs) driving back up the freeway about 10 miles an hour, like I'm in a one car funeral, and realizing, Lord, what have I done? And God started speaking to me about a certain technique on how to do a portrait in pastel in which I could do three portraits in one day. So in seven days, I was finished. And I went back down there, and he was real impressed. He said, you got the job permanently. So when he got ready to leave, I forgot who came behind him. Uh, but whoever came behind him, from Stallings to Shula to everybody that came behind him, they would fire the whole staff, but they would keep me. And then when Coach Saban came in, uh, I wanted something out of Co Saban more than I had then. I wanted a contract with him. Uh, I wanted to do something on him. And uh, he said he agreed, but I'd have to go and talk to his people in Memphis. And so uh, went to Memphis, Tennessee. He was represented by Jimmy Sexton. Went in there. They had this table that looked like a freeway. I mean, it was so long, big glass table, this glass room. We went in, Joe Namus agent. Mike Bight went with me, and we came out of there. Coach Saban picked me to do artwork for him. We signed a contract with him. He gave me an endorsement and everything. never done that for nobody before. It blew my mind. Mine's still blown.
1: Backing up just a little bit, you're uh, married with children, yeah. or a child at least. You're trying to get your art career going, and— you get a what your mom would consider a real job. You went to a Sipco American Cast Iron Pipe Company in Birmingham.
0: Well, that was my mom's mantra. You know the 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 term "starving artist" is very very real. I went through that, um, and um, that that was one thing she always told me: get a real job. You know, this is not gonna not gonna be able to do this, and so. Uh, I went to American Cast Iron Pipe Company, which most people call Hell Junior. <laughs> and the night they told me to report the work, it was a nightshare. And you could imagine what it's looked like at a cast iron pipe at night. And all of this fire and everything is everywhere. There's melted iron and stuff like that. It's going all over the place. There's smoke and everything. You think you went to hell. And so at that time, they were hiring a lot of guys that were ex-athletes you know i played football at homewood and so the reason why it was because they needed somebody with the constitution to handle what you're fixing to go do for a living and it was one of the worst experiences i've ever had as far as a job but i had to take care of my family that's what you had to do and so we see a lot of people getting hurt a lot of people getting killed all the time and and that was just the job and so one day I was there and working uh, on this job right in front of the oven, you know, where you make pipe. Then you have to roll them down into this oven where they have to be go through a certain amount of fire to test whether or not the pipe is going to be uh, good enough to sustain what it's got to do the purpose of it. And so <clears throat> these pipe were rolling down this rail, towards the oven, and it was my job to keep them straight. So uh, as they were rolling down, and the, my boss had told me always, watch what you're doing now. Don't take your eyes off for a second and watch what you're doing. And, you know, I thought, well, sure, I got this made. You know, so the pipe was rolling down, and I took my eyes off for one minute, and the next thing you know, two pipes collided with my thumb in the middle of them. And uh, from my thumb all the way down into my hand, was absolutely crushed. And uh, there was so much uh, dirt and metal fragments and everything on the pipe and everything, that all in my hand. But I could see that my hand was just crushed. And I knew I'd never paint again. And and I heard the enemy whisper in my ear, I got you this time, you'll never do anything paint again. And so uh, I stopped working, and I put my hand behind my back because I couldn't stand to look at it. It looked just that bad. And so I had a boss... By the name of Rock, Roy Caffey. He was by the toughest of 50 Cent state. Nothing could faze him. He came over, he looked at my hand, and he went, he screamed. And he called for the ambulance to come inside the plant to get me to take me to the hospital. So at that time, I, was, I think I was in such shock. I didn't feel anything, but my hand looked so bad. And then um, I still had my glove on. And I could just peel my glove back, and uh, I was like, you know. And so the ambulance came. By the time we were on our way to Brookwood Hospital, we were about halfway there. I started getting feeling back in my hand, and it started to throb. I mean, all the way up my shoulder was just, you know, it was just hurting so bad. And a doctor came in and said, we got to clean it first before we can do anything to it. And it was hurting so bad that I couldn't even stand for anybody to reach towards it, to, to touch it. And they said, we're going to have to deaden it enough to clean it. So they took this... Three these long needles and give me a shot here, shot here, in between my fingers, and right in here. And uh, I could still feel it, and so they got to give another one, right up under here or something like that. And see, once it got dead enough for them to clean it, they put it in a solution and about this much iron and steel, about what two or three inches of iron and steel and dirt came out of my my hand. Mm-hmm. And so after that, you know. And they stitched it up with, I forgot how many stitches, but it was a lot. Uh, stitched it up and told me, you'll never be able to use this hand again. It'll be just a glorified club on the end of your wrist. And so you'll never be able to use it again. so I was thinking, man, I'm working on painting at home. And I'll never be able to paint again. It's my right hand. And deep depression. And so there's a painting that I was working on at home of Samson. And, uh, I went and sat in front of the painting and started crying, knowing I could never do what God had chosen me to do and what he had anointed me to do. And one thing I didn't realize that if he had anointed me to do it, nothing happened to the anointing in the accident. It was just my physical hand, and it's a lot more to what I do than my physical hand. And I didn't realize that it wasn't my hand that was doing the artwork, it was here. So he spoke to me and told me, go sit in front of the painting, we're going to we're gonna start working on the painting. And I said, God, I can't do it. I mean, you know what happened, I mean, I can't do anything like that. And so my hand was wrapped up in all this gauze and stuff, and, and so he said, pick up your paintbrush. Picked up my left hand, he said, no, with your right. I said, God, I can't hold it, you know. And I'm crying, you know, wondering why is he telling me all this stuff? And so I put paintbrush down in there where I can and it dropped on the floor. And I picked it back up and I did it again. He said, Now let's start painting. And so I reached towards the painting and my hands start moving by itself. And the colors and everything are going up perfect, better than it better than it was before. And then I learned that it wasn't me doing
1: it, it was him doing it through me. Never been the same. Uh, who who are you painting? Samson. Samson. Mm-hmm. Another man who didn't use his gift the way mm-hmm. God intended. Yeah. And ended up, before he died,
0: he ended up seeing God do something greater in his life than he ever did. So.
2: And another man who was, uh, you know, moved along by God's strength. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, That's I, appropriate.
1: I know your sports art took off. You've been very successful. Who all have you painted? I, I know a lot of them are University Ooh. of Alabama, but you did the championship commemorative for Auburn. Yeah, Auburn, um, did a lot of pro
0: sports. I mean, I can't really, I mean, Bart Starr commissioned me before he passed away. Uh, Eddie Robinson Jr. commissioned me to do his family. Ended up working with Doug Williams, Washington Redskins, uh, Ozzie Newsom, Cleveland Browns, a um, whole lot of different athletes. I mean, I, I can't name all of those guys, but God really tremendously blessed I me. Mean, I think one, one night, though, I mean, after I met Coach Saban and everything, you uh, know, Alabama won a national championship. I'm sitting in my studio. People are calling me. Are oh, you going to do a painting of it? And I want to pre-order a prince and all this kind of stuff. And I'm sitting there being as happy as I can be. And all of a sudden, God speaks to me and said, we're not going that way. We're going this way.
3: Mm.
0: And I'm like, you know, I know you hear all these people calling. <laughs> and you know how much my family needs and money. And then he says this way. And I look like in the spirit and I see where he's pointing. And it's in the civil rights movement artwork. And civil rights movement artwork as far as marketability is terrible at the point. And I'm like, why in the world are you telling me to go this way when this right here is perfect? And so that's all he says. And I just know that at that point in time, oh, bam, whatever he says, no matter how strange it is, do what he says. I said, okay, we'll go that way. So the next thing, you know, uh, Alabama football legend, Bob um. Before I meet Bob, I do a painting of uh, for the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Movement in Birmingham. Then I get a commission to do uh, the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday in Selma. Oh. Then I get the opportunity to do another one, um, Fred Shuttlesworth. And so Bob calls me and he he says, "Uh, oh, oh, we're going to uh, this museum in Louisiana," and so. Uh, we get together and we go to a museum in Louisiana. He starts talking to me. He said, "Um, did you know that Dr. King wrote his Nobel Peace Prize speech in a place called Bimini? I said, Bimini, what is that? He said, the Bahamas. There's a place called Bimini in the Bahamas. I said, no, I had done all of this research on civil rights artwork. I never knew anything about this. And he said, you know, they didn't tell Uh, people that they were going to Bimini because J. Edgar Hoover uh, was really after Dr. King to (laughs) to get him killed because uh, he was very, very furious with Dr. King because he wanted the Nobel Peace Prize and he won it instead. And so um, Dr. King, they didn't tell anybody they were going. And so that might be why you don't know. He said, but I know, I know not only the people uh, in Bimini," he said. "I know the people in the government, and I know personally the guy that took Dr. King to the mangroves, where he sat down and wrote his Nobel Peace Prize speech." He said, "Would you like to go over and meet these guys?" And so I blew my mind, and I'm just sitting there thinking, you know, sitting there thinking in the car. We're just driving down the street, and we're having this conversation. I thought this was just a conversation. And I said, "Wow, I, I would love to do that." And all of a sudden, he picks up the phone and he calls somebody. And he said, "Yeah, he's here right easy, right here with me right now." He said, "Yeah, we're thinking about coming over." I looked at him and like, and 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 then he says, "Here." He gives me the phone. And I said, "Who is this?" He says, "It's a government official in Bimini in the Bahamas." I dropped the phone on the floor. I said, "Are you kidding?" He said, "Pick up the phone." <laughs> and so I picked the phone up, and they're talking to me in their dialect, and they, I hadn't been anywhere. I mean, I had never been out of the country in my life. I don't even know what's a passport. What I mean, you know, I'm like Jesus. I've not just been to Jerusalem, you know. <laughs> and so uh, they're inviting me to come over. We want you to come over, and we want you to take you to the place where Dr. King. Wrote his Nobel Peace Prize speech, and we want you to actually do a painting of that place, and we'll help you promote that. And now my mind is blown. And so, get the phone back to Bob, and he's agreed to take me over. He said, "Okay, yeah, I'll take him up on the boat, boat in the ocean, boat." And see, the only thing that's from the ghetto, boat. I mean, you know, either you row it or you go fishing with it. Well, they sink. <laughs> yeah, and so uh, Bob has a yacht. And so, long story short, he takes me over They take me to the place where Dr. King was. He introduced me to the guy, still living, he's 87 years old at the time, Ansel Saunders. This is the guy that took Dr. King into the mangroves and took him to this place inside the mangroves where he wrote his Nobel Peace Prize speech to meet him. Then uh, he can't go because there's something along his boaty. so he sends me out with this other guy. We go into the place. Dr. King, I had done some research. Dr. King had made a statement that inside the mangroves, um, the place was so peaceful that he had never experienced any kind of peace like that in his life. You know, he's a minister. You experience with the peace peace of God. But there's a place where you say it's, been, it's more than you've ever seen in your life. When he took me into the mangroves, I knew exactly what he was talking about because that's a, that's the way it was. It was it was so peaceful that it, it's scary. Um, in America, we don't realize that we live under such stress that it's it's so normal to us that we just learn how to handle it. And when you go over to a place like that, the peace level is so strong that it is it takes you a while to get used to it. You know. And then when you're there, after a few days, you start to get used to it. And then when you come back home, when you're approaching Miami, that stress level starts coming back up. (laughs) And you start realizing we're living in a real stressful society here. So uh, we go there, take the photographs, do the painting. Uh, I let Ambassador Andrew Young know about it. And he's crazy about it. He wants to see the painting before I go back. I go to Atlanta and take the painting with him, show it to him. He's so excited, he wants to go back over there with me to unveil the
1: painting, so he does.
2: Now, is Ambassador Young an ambassador to the Bahamas? Mm -mm. Ambassador
1: to the United States of America. He was one of Martin Luther King's lieutenants during the Civil
0: Rights Movement. Oh, I'm sorry. But he was appointed ambassador to the United States by President Carter. Gotcha. United Nations,
1: yeah. Yeah. Gotcha, okay.
0: And so, uh, he went back with me. Our relationship grew stronger and stronger, and so we unveiled the painting over here which the history in the Bahamas is so strong. Uh, they were under British rule uh, over there. And what I, one thing I learned about slavery, one thing we were taught about slavery was people went to Africa and brought Africans back over here and they were slaves in America. Well, see, that's the only thing I knew. I didn't know that people went to Africa and they took people not only back to America, but to other parts of the world also, Great Britain. And so the people in the Bahamas were slaves under Great Britain's rule. And so they used the teachings of Dr. King to free themselves from great, from ruling Great Britain. And so Dr. King, to them, is, uh, they take him a whole lot more serious over there than we do here. And so... Um, uh, I got to know some of the people. And so we sat down, and we started talking, having breakfast together on the boat. And uh, never knew that we got all of this in common. And at the same time, Dr. King means so much to us, people in Jamaica you know, and all, all over the world. We have all this stuff. Because they used his teachings to, to become free.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And so the painting itself... Uh, When we unveiled it over there with Ambassador, they went crazy over it. So we had to place a reproduction in the airport in Bimini. And then, now they want me to come back over there. I was supposed to be going back this summer to place a reproduction at the airport in Nassau. Then we get to meet the Prime Minister. Then at the same time, we place one of the reproductions of the painting we did for the uh, celebration of Bloody Sunday in Selma, in which I used Sidney Poitier in there because he was a great contributor to the civil rights movement. But not knowing at the time, Nassau, Bahamas is his home. And so we got a chance to talk to his daughter about putting one of those reproductions in the airport in honor of her father, to let them know what his contributions were here in the civil rights movement and to honor him over there. So we're looking forward to that, to some.
2: Is there one of your paintings that, uh, and I know that you're, you're putting replications of of your paintings in various places. Is Mm -hmm. there one that really prevails over the others that, uh,
0: well, not really. I think the, the Selma
2: painting. I just love the Fred Shuttlesworth painting. I I can't (laughs) help but think that that one is on high demand. But I could be wrong.
0: No, you're not. Um, That was uh, the the director of the CIA under President Obama heard about that painting, and then he saw digital of it, and Fred Shuttlesworth was one of his heroes. So he came here to Birmingham to get a reproduction of the painting. Really? Wow. And so this was John O'Brennan. And so he gave me this coin that he always gives to, these little special coins that he has that he gives to people, and he wrote me a letter on CIA stationery, saying how much he loved the painting. And so, when the one thing that happened was, was kind of, I don't know how to take it, you know, uh, one thing that happened when the Obama administration was over and the Trump administration was coming in. The people in the Obama administration, like in the CIA, you take your stuff home and clear the office for the one that's coming in. And so they tell me that uh I was wondering, uh, where's Mr. O'Brien gonna take, make sure he takes his his reproduction home. And they said that somebody from the Trump administration <laughs> came in and they saw the painting. And they told him you can take everything but that painting. <laughs> And so I didn't know how to feel about it. You know, the director of the CIA was fixing to have my painting in his home, but now he can't have it. He can't take it home with him. But the reason why is the people of the Trump administration liked it so much. It stays here. So it's still in the CIA now, in the CIA (coughs) headquarters. And so I'm thinking, well... I think I just sent him a reproduction (laughs) 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 and let it stay there. But
1: that was a
0: special. That was a special.
1: Well, I know you're not very busy now, not doing very much. I I have also (laughs) heard that you're painting a whole different kind of athletes, not necessarily Uh, a human athlete. Ah,
0: yeah. We were putting together a foundation where we're going to be offering fine art scholarships to high school students. Uh, We're going to start here in America. We're going to stretch it out into the Bahamas. And um, also there's a guy in Great Britain by the name of uh, Prince Charles that heard about my artwork, and especially the one in Bimini, and he wants a reproduction of that artwork. And so if it wasn't for COVID, we'd have had this over with a long time ago. And uh, so we're going to stretch out uh, the reach of the foundation into other countries and also here. And one of the ways that we're going to fund the foundation is I'm going to be doing some artwork of some thoroughbred horses and everybody that don't like Alabama and don't like Auburn (laughs) loves horses. (laughs) So, um, and I love horses also. And so we're going to start doing paintings. I've already done 10 and we're going to, uh, limited edition prints and sell those. And we're going to fund, that's one of the ways we're going to fund the foundation. And so we have a, uh uh, owner of a very, very large horse farm and racetrack in Georgia. He's invited me to come to his place to photograph and take pictures of the horses. And, and he's going to help us, you know, with the foundation. And then as I heard, there's another, uh, person in Kentucky that's, done the same offer and then we got another place in Tennessee where we're going to start doing that and so once we get the scholarships to the kids fine art scholarship you know kids go to college they stay there for four years they come out then they work with us Mm -hmm. and so we got opportunities with a lot of NFL teams a lot of college teams and stuff like that that I couldn't get through personally but we'll use those opportunities to put them to work and build a foundation where it should be And and kids that have, you know, fine art talent, that they heard the same thing I used to hear. (laughs) And, you know, bury your talent, get a real job. Now they'll be able to dig up their talent and use their talent to make a
1: difference, to make a living. And uh, we're going to do some great things. Well, when you came in this morning, uh, you mentioned that uh, I think there's a chance for you to do the civil rights and sports And University of Alabama in one painting. Tell us about that. Oh my God!
0: I'm glad you you, you brought that one up. Um, uh, University of Alabama talked to me about doing a painting to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the integration of the football team. Coach Bryant, I can't say enough about him. In doing my research on all of this. I learned that he hasn't been celebrated half as much as he should have been. Um, you know, you hear a lot of things, people talking, you know, all of the rumor and stuff like that about the integration of the football team. And, you know, people have gotten those rumors and stuff like that, and they in their heads, and they actually think they know the story, and then they don't. And, you know, most people think that the the game between Southern Cale and Alabama caused him to integrate the team, and that wasn't true either. He had already started integrating the team. Uh he had actually already recruited Wilbur Jackson. Wilbur Jackson was sitting in the stands the night that game was played. He was a freshman and couldn't play. He couldn't he was a freshman I couldn't play. play. Freshman couldn't That's play in those days. And so he was in the stands. Coach Bryant was brilliant. I mean, the reason why he brought that game here was to prove to Governor Wallace of the need to open the door of integration. He knew Southern Cal was gonna beat him. He was real good friends with John McKay. And when they came down here, I mean the brilliance of the guy. I mean, Coach Bryant. And not only choosing Wilbur Jackson and John Mitchell, Coach Bryant made a statement that he said, I wanted to be like the branch Ricky of college football. And you know how branch Ricky was with Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson wasn't the, the best baseball player. He was a right baseball player for what, what uh Ricky wanted to do. Because uh Jackie Robinson was gonna be able to take a whole lot of stuff. Being the pioneer, he was going to have to take a whole lot of flack. And you had to be a special kind of person to take it. Well, Josh Gibson and a whole lot of the other players in the Negro Leagues were much better players, but they couldn't take the flack. But Robinson could. And Robinson would have to take it to not only open the door, but to keep the door open for who's coming behind him. Well, Coach Bryant was the same way. When he picked Wilbur Jackson and John Mitchell, he picked the right two guys. John Mitchell came in as a junior college player, and he could play when he first got there while Wilbur was waiting. And John Mitchell was not a great football player, he was a brilliant uh, uh, student. I mean, he had scholarships everywhere uh, as a student, and he was one of the greatest students in Alabama Alabama history, university history, and is president of the student, the student union, you know, at that time. And you got to understand something about these guys, the integrity of these guys at that point in time, you know, racism here was terrible. And a lot of the players on the team, a lot of the coaches and stuff had been influenced by what was what society was. And Coach Bryan knew that he was not only changing the team, he didn't have to change culture, change the minds of a lot of people. But he had to use the right players to get the mind changed for it to work. And so the first year that... John Mitchell comes to play. Back then, the players picked the team captains. Right now, the coaches pick the team captains at Alabama. Well, back then, the players did. And guess who the players picked to be their team captain? John Mitchell. The next year, the players picked to be the team captain, Wilbur Jackson. The players picked Sylvester Crohn. be the team captain. These guys' integrity was just that good. They're not just great football players, Mm -hmm. but they were... And Coach Brown knew about the integrity. It means a whole lot. Mm -hmm. And so, but at the same time, you can't get integrity out of a young man in four years. Mm -hmm. You get integrity from home in 17 years. Mm -hmm. So they had great parents. And so, it's just like uh, the first African American uh, to be an assistant coach to Coach Brown was John Mitchell. (laughs) <laughs> Ozzie Newsom, icon for Alabama, made up his mind, he's going to Auburn. Auburn's recruiting him. He's telling everybody, I'm going to Auburn. Coach Bryant tells John Mitchell to go to Leighton, Alabama, and spend the weekend with that kid. History. He tells Auburn, I'll see you later, and he becomes an icon in Alabama. He goes on to the pros. He's in the Hall of Fame as a player. He's getting ready to go into the Hall of Fame as a general manager, and he goes all that to John Mitchell. Well, uh, we're going to do that painting, and we're also writing a book to go along with the limited edition prints, and we're getting a whole lot of comments in the book from other players, coaches, and administrators that were there at the time, Uh, the president that was there at the time. Uh, We got comments, man, you wouldn't believe, from Ozzy and and everybody, and uh, it's it's such a... uh, tremendous opportunity. I think it's changed my life, to tell you the truth. I mean, when you can get your life changed at 60,
1: <laughs> it's got to be something well, Yours has been changed several times in those 60 <laughs> years, let's face it. There's got to be something huge going on. You know, there, there was a very good documentary done uh, mm. called Against the Tide. Mm. And I'm not saying that because I had a big part in it. <laughs> I, didn't, I was one of the guests that got interviewed on there because my wife and I were at that game. Mm. And we couldn't believe what was happening. Uh, that Alabama was getting beaten mm-hmm. that badly at Legion Field in Birmingham in 1970. but it was it was a turning point in in history, and I'm glad. I can't wait to see the painting once you get it done.
0: Yeah, we 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 staged the painting. The concept is in the president's box of Brian Denny, and uh, I can tell you all this. It's going to be in the book anyway. But um, John Mitchell is a coach for the Pittsburgh Steelers. He's been trying to retire for years, and they won't let him. And um, so we got Wilbur Jackson, and we got these special Alabama shirts and stuff like that, and the pose was for him and John Mitchell to stand in the president's box and look out over Bryant-Denny Stadium and look into the sky of memories of when they played Coach Bryant and everything. And so um, John Mitchell couldn't be there. So I was going to have to stand in for him. And so I'm standing in there with Wilbur Jackson shaking like a leaf photographers taking the pictures and everything. Wilbur Jackson is one of the classiest guys, you're ever going to meet. And so I pose, and then I send that photograph and some instructions to the photographer at the Pittsburgh Steelers, and we send one of the shirts up to John Mitchell. And so John poses in the same pose, and we get back in the magic of Photoshop. We put him in there. You know where i was and then do the painting behind that and i'm real excited about the painting and everything we got it done and all that we got the photo- photographs and we got the contracts and everything signed his licensed to the university I know. and then uh, you know i'm not thinking about the painting itself until i start doing it and i start to look at the intricate details of brian denny stadium all those seats all those stands
1: <laughs> and i'm like are you crazy you talk about all the mangroves you had to paint in. Oh, for Oh man, uh, that makes MLK the mangroves painting. seem like nothing. Oh, that yes, I you know.
0: And I'm thinking about man, all this all these, the skyboxes and all this kind of stuff. And then, yo, okay, a little bit at a time. So it takes me something like
1: that's the amazing thing about this man's know. art, by the way. If you look at the, even the sports action, you can see the grass flying up from the cleats. You can see yes. sweat coming yeah. off. Uh, yeah. The, the player's elbow, or it's, it's and, just amazing. And
2: what size canvas are you starting on?
1: Oh,
0: about 30 by 40 or something like that. But, okay. you know, my wife, you know, she sees me every month. <laughs> 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 she says, Who are you? Oh, <laughs> uh, She gets up and go to work every morning. I stop working at two o'clock at in the morning. I come up, she's asleep. She wakes up, I'm asleep. <laughs> she comes back home I'm in the studio so weekends that's our time (laughs) but but I tell you uh, they're planning the um, unveiling of that painting uh, Friday before the A-Day game of next year I'm thinking it's going to be I think they're going to put it in Coleman Coliseum Um, they're going to honor both of the guys uh, which they deserve Uh, got comments in the book from Cornelius Bennett uh, he speaks about how much pride he took in wearing number 97, which was John Mitchell's number. And then John Mitchell talks about what a great guy he was and, and a great player and how he honored him by wearing the number and all that kind of stuff. And, man, it, it really gets to you to hear these guys talk. And Walter Lewis, I just got a comment from him, and he talks about Coach Bryant. And, he, man, managed so much about this man that had been told.
1: One question I haven't asked yet. Did your mother ever agree that you had a real job?
2: That's a good question. (laughs) Did did she ever come around and at, at what point?
0: Before she passed away, she got sick. And I had done a painting for Bobby Humphrey. And Bobby Humphrey loved the painting so much that he bought the painting. And before Bobby, I had done a painting for Derek Thomas. And he loved the painting so much that he wanted two paintings. So he paid me $10,000 for the first painting. And then he paid me $10,000 for the second painting. And then Bobby paid me $12,000 for his painting. And I took the checks to my mom. And she was laying in bed, and I said, Mom, I said, look, look. And she said, she looked at the checks, and she grabbed them in her hands, and she looked down there, and she looked at me, and she said, you've got a real job. <laughs> oh.
1: <laughs>
2: Thank goodness she came around and, and you heard that, you know.
1: Uh, don't you agree that this is the epitome of the kind of story we want to tell on this Alabama life?
2: Yes, it absolutely is. And, you know, Steve, if, if someone were listening and they had they had a young child in the room hearing, and maybe it's an opportunity for you to say what you wish had been said to you, now, the teacher did, in a way, it just had some roadblocks until, you know, God uh, redirected. But what what would you say to the audience?
0: Wow, great question. Um, listen out for the foundation. Uh, the real job is tied to the purpose that God placed on your life. Uh, nobody determines that but God. and as far as the talent that you have that most people say you'll never be able to make a living at, they're wrong. And the joy is going to come from proving them wrong. And so, um, I thank God that we have the opportunity to reinforce the dream of a kid who wants to do this for a living. And to not only say, I encourage you to do it, but now let me help you do it. Let me get you... Uh, into a situation where you have a physical uh, scholarship that you go and study and sharpen it, and then you come back and you work with us to make a living and a difference doing it. You know, I wish that was, that is somewhat what uh what, what Saunders told me, mm-hmm. but I think that we're going to take it to the next level and actually prove, and then dis- disprove a lot of the stereotypes, you know, that you can't do this. You know, there's no such thing as God gives it to you, you can't do it. It might not be easy, but you can do it.
1: Well, as I mentioned, I had the honor of helping tell Steve's story in book form and in film and a documentary, and we have not even touched the surface. Mm-hmm. We, we really have not. If you would like to read more about Steve Skipper and his amazing life, uh, the book is called Dream On, and it's available wherever books are sold, including Amazon mm-hmm. and uh, ebook, print, as well as uh, uh, not audio, but we may get around to that someday. Mm-hmm. Uh, the movie is called Colors of Character and it's a documentary about an hour and 20 minutes and it's available uh, any place DVDs are, are available and also on uh, Apple uh, streaming and some other places too. colors of character movie dot com would be the best place to go to see that. Uh, if you lose all that, donkeith.com is my website. But <laughs> I want everybody to hear this man's story. And that's why when I got invited to that barbecue lunch that day, I went because my buddy Greg was paying for it. Mm. But it sure it opened up a lot of doors. Sure do miss Greg Call. Yep. Great, we, great, we certainly thank him at the end of the movie. Greg was our good friend. Mm-hmm. Steve, thanks so much. Good luck. Thank uh, you. And thank get you, busy. Bro. You're goofing off. i got nothing to do.
2: If you're great sleeping by you. 2 a.m., uh, it's a real honor and a privilege that you came at the time that you thank did. You so right? yeah. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you.
1: This Alabama Life, we try to tell the stories that are uplifting and inspirational and entertaining. And I think we hit all those uh, buttons today with with Steve Skipper. Uh, Be sure to check back for the next edition. You can get uh, this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, any place you typically get a podcast. The video podcast is available on the YouTube channel for 1819 News. That's 1819news.com. And uh, on their website. youtube page you can also go to 1819news.com and uh, see all the other things that these folks are involved in andrea thanks so much see you next time it's
2: great to be here thanks for coming
1: steve thank you so much andrea